scripture before the lesson this morning comes from the 16th chapter in the book of Acts. Acts 16, starting in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everybody's chains were, everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had all fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's good to see you this morning. I know we've got a number of visitors with us. We're really glad that you've come our way. We hope that you're able to participate in worship with us, and we hope that you come back and visit us again. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I have a, I guess, kind of a sad news, happy news announcement. Um, this week upcoming is the last week that we're going to do the Reading in Sync program. And the reason is it was never intended to last forever. This was something we were trying to do when everybody was kind of locked down, staying at home, and it was a way for us as a congregation to stay connected with each other. It worked wonderfully well, uh, but there are a lot of behind-the-scenes logistics to um, Reading in Sync, as you can imagine. And so uh, with this week coming up, we're going to read about our awesome God, 2 Kings chapters 2 through 7. And uh, we're going to have a lesson about that this coming Sunday morning, and then that will be it. If you say, wait, wait, I, I want to keep reading the Bible with my family, I say, that's a great idea. I think you ought to do that. I would suggest, maybe, that you and your family look at one of the gospel accounts, maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And why don't you do what we've been doing with reading in sync all along? Read five chapters of Mark uh, each week, just the way we've been doing it. It's a blessing to be in God's Word and to be reading together. And it's a blessing for us as a congregation to have come to the point where we are right now where we're more or less meeting back in person fairly consistently, and that's a real blessing. It's an answer to prayers when you think about it. Incidentally, I did some math this week, and if you've been reading in sync with us since the beginning, we began this program back in August, five chapters a week, and there have been a couple of repeats, as you've noticed, but overall, if you've read with us through this entire program, you've read something like 160 chapters of Scripture. There are only 1,189 chapters in the entire Bible, so that's a pretty sizable portion of God's Word. I'm glad you've been blessed by it. I know there are a lot online. We get, we get uh, emails and calls from you, and we're thankful that you've been participating with us, too, throughout the country and throughout the world. Thank you so much for being a part of this particular program. Anywhere with Jesus was our theme for this last week, Acts 16 through 20. Several years ago, well, quite a few years ago, I made my first transatlantic trip. I was going on a mission trip in London, England, back in the year 2000, and I was going with some people that I really didn't know 
at all. I knew that they were a brethren in Christ, uh, but didn't have much of a relationship with them. And I was going to be working with people that I didn't know at all, period. And this was, this was a big deal for me. I got on the airplane and I flew across the Atlantic Ocean and I'd never been that far from home ever in my life. When we landed on the runway at Gatwick Airport in London, the song that came to mind was Anywhere with Jesus. There's something about being a Christian. There's something about knowing and having a relationship with God that you can go anywhere on this planet and God is there. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. No matter what nation, no matter what continent you find yourself, God is there. And more than likely, you'll find family there as well, won't you? You'll find people who love the Lord and want to serve Him, and they're your family, your Christian family, your spiritual family. You really can go anywhere with Jesus. When you think about what happens in Acts 16, there's a question that is brought up by the Philippian jailer. When Paul and Silas went to the city of Philippi, which was in northern Greece, a place called Macedonia, they began to preach and to teach the gospel. They taught Lydia and her household and some other Jewish families. But then they were beaten and thrown in prison. And in Acts 16, verse 25, if you don't have your Bible open there, by the way, open to Acts 16 this morning. And notice in verse 25, the Bible says that Paul and Silas were in the middle of the night, in the dungeon, in the prison. They were in stocks. And what were they doing? Were they saying, woe is me, why has this happened to us? All of this is really unfair. It's not right. They've thrown us in prison for no reason. The Bible says they were singing hymns and praying and the other prisoners were listening the scripture goes on to say in acts 16 verses 26 and following that there was a great earthquake the doors of the prison were opened and the jailer who was responsible for the people in the prison he came to try to find out what's what's happened there was a great earthquake and the doors opened and it's dark inside the prison and the jailer immediately draws conclusion he thinks that everybody has escaped and of course his life is forfeit because that's the law and so the jailer pulls his sword and is about to take his own life when Paul, from inside the prison, calls out, don't do yourself any harm, we're still here, all of us. And then the jailer asks a question that people need to think very deeply about. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You can go anywhere with Jesus, but I'll tell you this, when Jesus went anywhere, he was trying to save people. That was his reason. That was his purpose. That was his whole point in coming to this world was to save people. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Luke 19 verse 10. And if you and I are going anywhere with Jesus, salvation ought to be on our minds as well. It was so much on the minds of Paul and Silas that even the Philippian jailer who didn't know anything about who Jesus was knew that those two men they were talking about salvation. The little girl with the demon back in Acts 16 verse 17 was following Paul and Silas around in the city as she was saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to, to us the way of salvation. They're talking about how to be saved. They're talking about how God wants to save you. And so the Philippian jailer drew some conclusions and he decided that he needed to ask these men, what must I do to be saved? It's about that question that I want to talk to you this morning.
What must I do? What must you do to be saved? Notice, first of all, the question that the jailer asked. It's the nature of the question in Acts 16, verse 30. The fact that he had the presence of mind, he was on the verge of suicide, found out things were not the way that he thought they were, and then asked this question about salvation. You know, he was looking death in the face. And he was probably thinking about what was going to happen after his death. He was probably wondering what God or gods might be responsible for his soul beyond this life. And it's in that context that he asked this question, what must I do to be saved? Think about the nature of the question. He understood very obviously that he was lost. There's something wrong in my life. There's something that is amiss, something that is not right. Jesus said that's a prerequisite for someone who would be saved. We must understand and acknowledge the lostness of our souls. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the way the Sermon on the Mount begins is with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He understood he was lost, but not only that, the jailer believed there might be a way out. He dared to hope. The fact that the prisoners were still present, the fact that Paul and Silas had been talking about salvation, they'd been singing hymns, they'd been doing all kinds of things, made him think that maybe even for him, there might be a way out. I want to tell you something this morning. No matter who you are and where you've been and what you've done in this world, I'm telling you there is a way out for you. Because of the God that we serve, there's a way for you to come back to him and to be right with him. There is a way. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the self-righteous people, the people that think there's nothing wrong. I didn't come to call them to repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. Those who are well don't need a doctor. Those who are sick, they know they need a physician. And so if there's something amiss in your life and you know that you need God and you're wondering, is there hope for me? Is there a way for me to have a relationship with him? Yes, there is. There's a way out. It's a question that we need to think about. What must I do to be saved? The jailer's question implies that there is something that must be done. As a matter of fact, that's the word he used. What must I do to be saved? Don't give me the peripherals. Don't give me the extras. Don't give me opinions and philosophies and ideas that sound good to you. Tell me what must I do to be saved? What's essential? What does God demand and require of me? That's a good question to reflect upon. The world is full of people who are saying a lot of things about what people should do to be saved. But the question we ought to ask is, what does God say I must do? Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 7, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. Must. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's in keeping the commandments and faithfully following the word of God that we find salvation. What does the jailer's question imply? It's interesting that he asked about himself and not others. What must I do to be saved? I've had many, many Bible studies over the years with people who were outside of Christ. And in many of those Bible studies, the discussion 
changes course sometimes where people start asking about what about this person what about that person maybe it's somebody they know or maybe as they read the bible maybe they ask questions like what about the thief on the cross what did he have to do to be saved and why can't i be saved like him or what about david or abraham what did they have to do to be saved and why can't i be saved like them the question the jailer asked was startlingly simple he just said what must i do What does God want from me? And that's a wise question for you to ask. What must I do? Not what did David do or the thief on the cross or anybody else. What does God want you to do? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes, Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Take heed to yourself. Pay attention to what God wants from you personally. Philippians 2.12 challenges us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What must I do to be saved? The jailer asked this question and he came to the right people. Not everybody has the answer to that question. Paul did. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ and Jesus had promised that he was going to send the spirit to his apostles to guide them into all truth. John 16 verse 13. And so in coming to Paul the apostle, the jailer asked the right people. Jesus promised in John 8 verse 32 that you and I can know the truth and that the truth will set us free. We read the apostles and the prophets words when we read the Bible. Things that were given by God to men so that they could record so that we can understand perfectly what God expects of us. When we ask the question today, what must I do to be saved? We need to open our Bibles and open our hearts and open our minds because God speaks to us through Scripture. The words of the apostles by inspiration recorded for us. What must I do to be saved? Thinking about the question that the jailer asked, I want us then to look at Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Look in your Bible if you would. The response or the reply that the jailer received. There's Paul and Silas with their bleeding backs sitting in a Roman prison. I'm sure it didn't smell pleasant. I'm sure it wasn't a great environment. They'd been singing hymns and praying to God and praising him. And now they have an opportunity to preach the gospel. Because somebody has asked them the question, wouldn't you love this as an evangelist? Wouldn't you love somebody to just walk up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? I mean, this is... This is an evangelist's dream. What does Paul say? What does Silas say to the Philippian jailer? Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. This is not just for you, Philippian jailer. You got a home, you got a wife, you got a family. They can be saved too. And here's the requirement. Here's what you must do. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and venture that the Philippian jailer had no clue or no concept of who the Lord Jesus Christ was at that point. He didn't know who Jesus was. 
Jesus was a Jewish man that came to earth and suffered and died in Israel, Jerusalem, which is a long way on a map from Philippi over in Macedonia. And the jailer was evidently a Roman citizen, or at least worked for the Romans. He had nothing to do with being Jewish. He didn't listen to the laws of Moses. And so when Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What he's doing is he's helping that jailer where he is to start on the road to obeying the gospel. Because you see, beliefs have consequences. When I truly believe something, when you truly believe something, there are consequences to those beliefs. It always comes out in the way we live, in the way we speak. What I believe deep down inside makes a difference in how I act. And the Bible even confirms that this is true. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ involves more than just mental assent. Yes, I acknowledge in my mind that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's belief, but that's not a living faith. In James chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons do what you do, though. Even the demons believe so much so that they tremble. That's James 2, 19. What's James getting at? He's saying, belief is right, it's good, but belief has consequences. Belief ought to express itself If I really believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to do something about that belief. In John 12, verses 42 and 43, there were many who believed on Jesus Christ secretly, but they would not confess him. They wouldn't tell anybody that's what they really believed because they were afraid because some had said that they were going to cast believers out of the synagogue. And the Bible says those people who believed in Jesus but wouldn't confess it says that they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Belief is more, brothers and sisters and friends, than just mental assent. Belief, biblical faith, has to do with trust and obedience to God. Faith without works, James says, is useless, it's dead. To believe something and not act on it, to believe something and not do something about it, is, it's empty. The Bible says... That the gospel is something that God expects us to obey. Obedience to the gospel is God's will. Well, what are you saying, John? Are you saying that Paul gave the Philippian jailer the wrong answer? Are you saying that when he said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household, you're saying there's more? I'm saying that belief on the Lord Jesus Christ means that I'm going to obey everything he teaches. That's what the Philippian jailer learned, by the way, as you're going to see in just a moment. The Philippian jailer understood that it's not just acknowledging a mental accuracy. It's not just saying that something is true in my mind and and assenting to that. Belief means that my life and my behavior and my words, they all change. I'm giving my life completely to Christ. And there are conditions that will be met as I walk in my faith. The gospel is something that God expects us to obey 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 describes the day of judgment when Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. It's not just to be believed, but it's to be obeyed. And that's exactly what the Philippian jailer went on to do. He believed and then he obeyed. 
Notice this. There's a consistent pattern when you read the book of Acts. Did you read Acts 16 through 20 this week? Did you read the accounts of people being converted and brought to Christ? Here's the consistent pattern that you read from Acts 2 all the way to Acts 28 and through the rest of the New Testament as well. Are you ready? The consistent pattern is this. Someone comes to faith, they hear the word of God, then they believe it. Upon believing in God and believing in what Jesus Christ has done, they repent of their sins. They turn away. They confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then they are baptized. And baptism is the connecting point with me and the blood of Christ, with you and the blood of Christ. That's the consistent pattern, even as you read on in Acts 16, even the jailer confessed, repented, and was baptized. That's implied in the scripture, and it's expressly stated. Think about the reply he received. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody doesn't know anything about Jesus, if somebody doesn't know anything about what the cross means and what that's all about, and they come and they say, what must I do to be saved? Don't start talking to them about baptism and repentance. Talk to them about who Jesus is. That's what the gospel begins with. What did Jesus come to do? What was he here for? And what does he want me to do as a result? That's the reply that the jailer received. I want us to look then at the conversion that the jailer experienced. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then notice what begins to happen. The Bible says in verse 32 of Acts 16, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and all who were in his house. I guess the jailer took them home. I, it's, it says that he brought them out in verse 29, but it doesn't really, or in verse 30, it, it doesn't say where he brought them out. Maybe the jailer lived in a place that was adjacent to the jail because proximity helps. Whatever the case, everybody's awake. It's the middle of the night. And now there's this Bible study happening. And they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to his household. They were sitting there listening with rapt attention. He heard a message about who Jesus is and how God loves him and how God wants a relationship with him. Despite his sin, despite his brokenness, despite all that had gone wrong in the jailer's life, God still loved the jailer. He heard that kind of message, and you need to hear that message as well. The, verse go, the passage goes on and says in verse 33, at the end of this Bible study, the jailer did something that was really remarkable. Here is a calloused Roman jailer. I am telling you, this guy probably has a pretty low regard for human life just because of his occupation, just because he had seen so many people put to death by the Roman government. He had seen so many people imprisoned. This was commonplace to him. But these men, Paul and Silas, when they spoke the word of the Lord, the jailer was overwhelmed with love for God, with love for these men who had taken the time to very graciously proclaim to him that God wanted a relationship with him. And so the jailer took them and he carefully washed their stripes. They had been beaten and they had been thrown in prison with no treatment. A lot of people have brought out the point that one of the things the jailer was doing here was evidencing his penitent heart. He wanted to make things right. 
He wanted, when he saw things that were unjust, when he saw things that were wrong, the jailer wanted those things to be made right, and especially if he had any control over it or anything to say about it. And so there's something that happened to these men that's wrong, that's unjust, and the jailer wanted to fix that. Repentance. I believed one thing a little while ago, but I believe something completely different now, and I want to show you that I believe something completely different. That's repentance. And then, in Acts 16, verse 33, the Bible goes on to say, immediately he and all his family were baptized. So what are you saying? Are you saying Paul didn't tell the truth back there in verse 31 when he said believe? No, Paul told the truth. But belief is trusting and obeying. Belief is believing in God and then doing what he says. And because of that, somehow in the proclaiming of God's word, somehow in this gospel message that Paul and Silas were communicating, somehow the jailer and his whole family got the idea that they ought to be baptized that very night. It's not as if they were setting a Sunday far in the future and, you know, maybe a month or two from now, we're going to have Baptism Sunday down by the river with Lydia and her household and everybody else has become a Christian and then we're going to baptize everybody. They understood that baptism is the point at which salvation occurs. They got that from Paul's sermon. They got that from the message that they'd heard about Jesus. We're going to go on a field trip for just a moment. Stay with me. When you read the Bible, baptism and salvation are connected, repeatedly connected. Baptism and salvation are connected. They are joined together by God, and you cannot separate them without changing the conditions that God has set forth in his word for salvation. Baptism and salvation are joined together. Allow me to share with you six scriptures that so indicate. Mark 1 verse 4, John the baptizer, back in the days before Jesus began his ministry, came baptizing in the wilderness, John did, preaching a baptism of repentance for what purpose? For the remission of sins. When people heard John preach and then they obeyed John's word, they received remission of sins because John was a prophet proclaiming the word of God. Again, in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, same incident. John the baptizer preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So if you come up to John the baptizer and say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be right with God? You know what John would say? Be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's what John would say. Well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus say that? Is, is that something that he would uphold? Mark 16, verse 16. The great commission for his apostles. Here's what Jesus says. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. What's Jesus doing? He's connecting belief and baptism with salvation. We ignore that truth at our eternal peril. If we say Jesus didn't really mean that, that verse really doesn't mean that. If we do that, people are going to be lost because we're not heeding and submitting to the very clearly, expressly spoken will of our Savior himself. This is serious. What must I do to be saved? Could Jesus be any more clear? Acts 2 verse 38. 
the people stopped Peter on the day of Pentecost in the middle of his sermon. And they said, men and brethren, what must we do? Very similar to what the jailer asks in Acts 16, verse 30. Since they already believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter didn't say, you need to believe and then you'll be saved. He'd just been preaching about Jesus for the last several minutes. So what did Peter say? Repent and let every one of you be baptized for what purpose? For the remission of sins. Belief, repentance, baptism, salvation. Salvation is connected with baptism repeatedly in Scripture. Another passage, Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16. Saul of Tarsus He's met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's penitent. He's sorrowful. He's been weeping and fasting and praying for three straight days. And a preacher comes to him and says, And now, why are you waiting, Paul, Saul? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Saul of Tarsus, he was already sorry for what he'd done. He was already a believer in Jesus. He already felt terrible and felt like he wanted to change his life, but he didn't know what to do. And this preacher came and said, Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is connected with salvation repeatedly in Scripture. 1 Peter 3.21, Peter's very plain. Here's what he says. There is also an antitype which now saves, there's our word, saves us. What is it, Peter? What's the antitype? Baptism. Oh, and by the way, it's not like when you get in the shower and you wash off the dirt and the grime from off your body. That's not what baptism does. It's not the removal of filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's what baptism is. It is saying to God, God, I can't save myself. I need you to save me through what Jesus did on the cross and I submit and I give myself to you. I want to be buried and raised with Christ. I want salvation through the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is connected with salvation consistently throughout Scripture. That's why the jailer and his household were baptized immediately as soon as they'd heard the word of God and as soon as the stripes had been washed of Paul and Silas, first thing they all did, middle of the night, went and baptized a bunch of people because that was the point at which the jailer found salvation. And so the conversion he experienced, at once they were baptized. And then watch this. Look at Acts 16, 34. The scripture goes on to say, now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having done what? Believed in God with all his household. That's what he was told to do in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ meant that he was going to repent of his sin and that he was going to be baptized because this is the beginning of a new life with Christ, the new birth, born again. That's what happened to the jailer. And because of that, he rejoiced. When people understand what baptism does and people participate for the right reasons in baptism, it leads to joy because I know that I've had an experience with God. I know what it means and I can communicate its significance because it's right there in black and white in the scriptures. 
I know what it's for. I know what I did. And I know what God has done as a result because he promised and God never breaks a promise. If he says, believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. And if I do that, God's promises are fulfilled. He never breaks a promise. That's why people rejoiced. And then as you read on in Acts 16, there's kind of an aftermath, an epilogue. The Bible says that the magistrates of the, of the city, they're, they're really embarrassed because they've beaten Paul and Silas. They're Roman citizens. That's, that's a big no-no. And so after apologizing to Paul and Silas and kind of encouraging them to go away quickly, quietly, please leave us alone. The Bible says in Acts 16, verse 40, that Paul met with the brethren briefly before departing Philippi. What's interesting about that is you've got Lydia and her household earlier in the chapter who were baptized. And now you've got the Philippian jailer and his household who heard the word of God and were baptized. You've got a church, an assembly, a group of people who belong to Jesus. And I'd like to point out for your consideration that when the jailer and his household were baptized in response to the question, what must I do to be saved? they became part of the only church in existence anywhere in the world at that time. There was only one church. Individual congregations in many cities, but they all taught the same thing. And if you ask them the question, what must I do to be saved? They'd all give the same answer. They'd all say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, be baptized, and you'll be saved, you and your household. God wants you to come home to him. God wants a relationship with you. This is how you do it. And when you do it, you become part of a family. You become part of a group that belongs to God and to your family. And we're to function as a family. And we're to love each other like family. And we're to live as if we're family. That's God's vision. And anywhere in the world you go, when you find those of like precious faith who have responded to the gospel call the way the jailer did and the way that you have, when you find that, you find family. That's the conversion he experienced. It's a blessing to be a part of the kingdom of the church of Jesus Christ. What must you do to be saved? Repent, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Can we help you do that this morning? If so, why don't you make your way down the aisle and we'll take care of that while together we stand and while we sing. Why?